0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with E.L. Doctorow. This program originally aired in 2009.
1: E.L. Doctorow is an award-winning novelist who uses America's past to set the stage for the present. The pre-World War I era, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Red Scare have all been settings for his books. But don't call Doctorow a historical fiction writer. The New York-born author does not like adjectives next to his profession. E.L. Doctorow says he's a fiction writer, plain and simple. His book, Ragtime, has been called one of the top 100 American novels of the 20th century, while books like Billy Bathgate, World's Fair, and The March have numerous literary awards. His latest offering, Homer and Langley, tells the story of the Collier brothers, two men who lived their whole lives in a Harlem brownstone on the corner of 128th Street and 5th Ave. Homer and Langley were reclusives, eccentrics, and hoarders who would spend their days collecting junk from their neighborhood. Newspapers, dressmaker dummies, chandeliers, even a Ford Model T car. But they would reach international fame after they were found dead, and the world learned of the 180 tons of junk found in their home. Time had all but forgotten the Collier brothers, but E.L. Doctorow has tried to bring the story back to his readers in his new book, Homer and Langley. And even though he's taking great fictional liberties, Doctor O, as many fiction writers do, asks why they might have been this way and what their lives might have been like as the world was looking the other way. On Wednesday, Doctorow came to the music hall in Portsmouth to read from his book and take some questions from me and our live audience. Our house band Dreadnought, heard here, provided the evening's music. Writers on a New England stage with E.L. Doctorow was made possible with support from Jumpin' Jays Fish Cafe. Today in The Exchange, we play back for you a part of this performance. A word of warning, some of the content is for mature audiences.
0: Good evening. Uh, Homer and Langley Collier actually lived in New York City in the 20th century. And they came from a rather well-to-do family. And after their parents died, they opted out They retreated into their home, closed the door, pulled the shutters tight, and became recluses and collectors and obsessive compulsive hoarders, but also folklore. They became instant folklore. When they died, the city authorities and police had to drill through the roof to get into the house and brought out tons of material, junk, stuff, and attracted an enormous crowd. I was a kid at the time and saw the news reports, and I remember thinking that they were instant folklore. They had become American myths, and to this day when firemen come into a house that's somewhat like that, they call it a Collier situation. But what interested me over the years was not that they were hoarders, but they had opted out. That was the mystery that drew me to writing this book. It's told by one of the brothers Homer as a kind of memoir as he's looking back on his life and I thought I'd read the first few pages when they were young and before they became what they became. I'm Homer the blind brother. I didn't lose my sight all at once it was like the movies a slow fade out. When I was told what was happening I was interested to measure it. I was in my late teens then keen on everything. What I did this particular winter was to stand back from the lake in Central Park, where they did all their ice skating, and see what I could see and couldn't see as a day-by-day thing. The houses over to Central Park West went first, they got darker as if dissolving into the dark sky until I couldn't make them out, and then the trees began to lose their shape, and then finally, this was toward the end of the season, maybe it was late February of that very cool year, and all I could see were these phantom shapes of the ice skaters floating past me on a field of ice. And then the white ice, that last light went gray, and then altogether black. And then all my sight was gone, though I could hear clearly the scoot scut of the blades on the ice, a very satisfying sound, a soft sound, though full of intention, a deeper tone than you'd expect made by the skate blades, perhaps for having sounded the resonant basso of the water under the ice, scoot, scut, scoot, scut. I would hear someone going someplace fast and then the twirl into that long scratch as the skater spun to a stop. And then I laughed too for the joy of that ability of the skater to come to a dead stop all at once, going along scoot, scut, and then scratch. Of course, I was sad too, but it was lucky this happened to me when I was so young with no idea of being disabled moving on in my mind to my other capacities like my exceptional hearing, which I trained to a degree of alertness that was almost visual. Langley said I had ears like a bat, and he tested that proposition as he liked to subject everything to review. I was, of course, familiar with our house, all four stories of it, and could navigate every room up and down the stairs without hesitation, knowing where everything was by memory. I knew the drawing room, our father's study, our mother's sitting room, the dining room with its 18 chairs and the walnut long table, the butler's pantry and the kitchen, the parlor, the bedrooms. I remembered how many of the carpeted steps there were between the floors. I didn't even have to hold on to the railing. You could watch me, and if you didn't know me, you wouldn't know my eyes were dead. But Langley said the true test of my hearing capacity would come when no memory was involved. So he shifted things around a bit, taking me into the music room where he earlier rolled the grand piano around to a different corner, and had put the Japanese folding screen with the herons in water in the middle of the room, and for good measure twirled me around in the doorway till my entire sense of direction was obliterated. And I had to laugh because, don't you know, I walked right around that folding screen and sat down at the piano exactly as if I knew where he'd put it, as I did. I could hear surfaces, I said to Langley. A blind bat whistles, that's the way he does it. But I didn't have to whistle, did I? He was truly amazed. Langley is the older of us by two years, and I've always liked to impress him in whatever way I could. This time, he was already a college student in his first year at Columbia. How do you do it, he said. This is of scientific interest. I said, I feel shapes as they push the air away or I feel heat from things. You can turn me around till I'm dizzy, but I can still tell where the air is filled in with something solid. And there were other compensations as well. I had tutors for my education, and of course I was comfortably enrolled in the West End Conservatory of Music, where I'd been a student since my sighted years. My skill as a pianist rendered my blindness acceptable in the social world. As I grew older, people spoke of my gallantry and the girls certainly liked me. In our New York society of those days, one parental means of ensuring a daughter's marriage to a suitable husband was to warn her, from birth it seemed, to watch out for men and to not quite trust them. This was well before the great war when the days of the flapper and the women smoking cigarettes and drinking martinis were in the unimaginable future. So a handsome young blind man of reputable family was particularly attractive insofar as he could not even in secret do anything untoward. His helplessness was very alluring to a woman trained since birth herself to be helpless. It made her feel strong and command. It could bring out her sense of pity. It could do lots of things, my sightlessness. She could express herself, give herself to her pent up feelings as she could not safely do with a normal fellow. I dressed very well. I could shave myself with my straight razor and never nick the skin. And at my instructions, the barber kept my hair a bit longer than it was being worn in that day, so that when at some gathering I sat at the piano and played the appassionata, for instance, or the revolutionary etude, my hair would fly about. I had a lot of it then, a good thick mop of brown hair parted in the middle and coming down each side of my head. Franz Lisztian hair is what it was. And if we were sitting on a sofa and no one was about a young lady friend might kiss me and touch my face and kiss me, and, and I, being blind, could put my hand on her thigh without seeming to have that intention. <laughs> and so she might gasp, but would leave it there for fear of embarrassing me. I should say that as a man who never married, I have been particularly sensitive to women, very appreciative in fact. And let me admit right off that I had a sexual experience or two in this time I'm describing, this time of my blind city life as a handsome young fellow, not yet 20, when our parents were still alive and had many soirees and entertained the various people of the city in our home, a monumental tribute to late Victorian design that would be bypassed by modernity, as for instance, the interior fashions of our family friend Elsie DeWolf who, after my father wouldn't allow her to revamp the entire place, never again set foot in our manse, and which I always found comfortable, solid, dependable, with its big upholstered pieces, or tufted empire side chairs, or heavy drapes over the curtains on the ceiling to floor windows, or medieval tapestries hung from gilt poles and bow-windowed bookcases, thick Persian rugs and standing lamps with tassel shades, and matching chinois amphora, that you could almost walk into. It was all very eclectic being a record of sorts of our parents' travels. And cluttered it might have seemed to outsiders, but it seemed normal and right to us, and it was our legacy, Langley's and mine. This sense of living with things assertively inanimate and having to walk around them. Our parents went abroad for a month every year sailing away on one ocean line or another, waving from the railing of some great three or four stacker, the Carmania, the Mauritania, the neurasthenia. as she pulled away from the dock. And they looked so small up there, as small as I felt with my hand in the right hand of my nurse and the ship's horn sounding in my feet and the gulls flying about as if in celebration, as if something really fine was going on. I used to wonder what would happen to my father's patients while he was away, for he was a prominent women's doctor and I worried that they would get sick and maybe die, waiting for him to return. Even as my parents were running around England or Italy or Greece or Egypt or wherever they were, their return was presaged by things in crates delivered to the back door by the railway express company. Ancient Islamic tiles or rare books or marble water fountain or busts of Romans with no noses or missing ears or antique armoires with their fecal smell. And then finally, with great huzzas, thereafter I'd almost forgotten all about them, would be mother and father themselves stepping out of the cab in front of the house and carrying in their arms such treasures as hadn't preceded them. They were not entirely thoughtless parents, for there were always presents for Langley and me, things really to excite a boy, like an antique toy train that was too delicate to play with or a gold-plated hairbrush. We did some traveling as well, too, my brother and I, being habitual summer campers in our youth. Our camp was in Maine on a coastal plateau of woods and fields, a good place to appreciate nature. The more our country lay under blankets of factory smoke, the more the coal came rattling up from the mines, the more our massive locomotives thundered through the night and big harvesting machines sliced their way through the crops, and black cars filled the streets, blowing their horns and crashing into one another the more the American people worshipped nature. Most often this devotion was relegated to the children, so there we were living in primitive cabins in Maine, boys and girls in adjoining camps. I was in the fullness of my senses then. My legs were limber and my arms strong and sinewy and I could see the world with all the unconscious happiness of a 14-year-old. Not far from the camps on a bluff overlooking the ocean was a meadow profuse with wild blackberry bushes and one afternoon Numbers of us were there plucking the ripe blackberries and biting into their warm pericarp pulp, competing with flights of bumblebees as we raced them from one bush to another and stuffed the berries into our mouths till the juice dripped down our chins. The air was thickened with floating communities of gnats that rose and fell, expanding and contracting like astronomical events. And the sun shone on our heads and behind me at the foot of the claff were the black and silver rocks patiently taking and breaking apart the waves and beyond that the glittering sea radiant with shards of sun and all of it in my clear eyes as I turned in triumph to this one girl with whom I had bonded, Eleanor was her name, and stretched my arms wide and bowed as the magician who had made it for her. And somehow when the others moved on we lingered conspiratorially behind a thicket of blackberry bushes. Until the sound of them was gone and we were there unattended having broken camp rules and so self-defined as more grown-up than anyone believed though we grew reflective walking back holding hands without even realizing it is there any love purer than this when you don't even know what it is she had a moist warm hand and dark eyes and hair this Eleanor neither of us was embarrassed by the fact that she was a good head taller than me I remember her lisp, the way her tongue tip was caught between her teeth when she pronounced her S's. She was not one of the socially self-assured ones who abounded in the girls' side of the camp. She wore the uniform green shirt and gray bloomers they all wore. But she was something of a loner, and in my eyes she seemed distinguished and fetching and thoughtful in some state of longing analogous to my own for what neither of us could have said. This was my first declared affection and so serious that even Langley, who lived in another cabin with his age group, did not tease me. I wove a lanyard for Eleanor and cut and stitched a model birch bark canoe for her. Oh, but this is a sad tale I have wandered into. The boys' and girls' camps were separated by a stand of woods through the length of which was a tall wire fence of the kind to keep people out. And so it was a major escapade at night for the older boys to climb over or dig under this fence and challenge authority by running through the girls' camp, shouting and dodging, pursuing counselors, and banging on cabin doors so as to elicit delighted shrieks. But Eleanor and I breached the fence to meet after everyone was asleep and to wander about under the stars and talk philosophically about life. And that's how it happened that on one warm August night, we found ourselves down the road a mile or two at a lodge dedicated like our lamp to getting back to nature but it was for adults, for parents. And attracted by a flickering light in the otherwise dark manse, we tiptoed up on the porch and through the window saw a shocking thing, what in later time would be called a blue movie. Its licentious demonstration was taking place on a portable screen, something like a large window shade. In the reflected light, we could see in silhouette an audience of attentive adults leaning forward in their chairs and sofas I remember the sound of the projector, not that far from the open window, the whirring sound it made, like a field of cicadas. The woman on the screen, naked but for a pair of high-heeled shoes, lay on her back on a table, and the man, also naked, stood holding her legs under the knees so that she was proffered to receive his organ, of which he made sure first to exhibit its enormity to the audience. He was an ugly, bald, skinny man, with just that one disproportionate feature to distinguish him. (laughs) As he shoved himself again and again into the woman, she was given to pulling her hair while her legs kicked up, convulsively each shoe tip jabbing the air, in rapid succession as if she'd been jolted with an electric current. I was rapt and horrified, but also thrilled to a level of unnatural feeling that was akin to nausea. I do not wonder now that with the invention of moving pictures, Their pornographic possibilities were immediately understood. Did my friend gasp? Did she tug at my hand to pull me away? If she did, I would not have noticed. But when I was sufficiently recovered in my senses, I turned and she was nowhere to be seen. I ran back the way would come and on this moonlit light, a night as black and white as the film, I could see no one on the road ahead of me. The summer had some weeks to go, but my friend Eleanor never spoke to me again or even looked my way a decision I accepted as an accomplice by gender of the male performer. She was right to run for me, for on that night, romance was unseated in my mind, and in its place was enthroned the idea that sex was something you did to them, or to all of them, including poor, shy Eleanor. It is a puerile illusion hardly worthy of a 14-year-old mind, yet it persists among grown men even as they meet women more avidly copulative than they. Of course, part of me watching that tawdry little film felt no less betrayed by the adult world than did my Eleanor. I don't mean to imply that my mother and father were among that audience. They weren't. In fact, when I confided in Langley, we agreed that our father and mother were exempt from the race of the carnally afflicted. (laughs) We were not so childish as to think our parents indulged in sex merely the two times it took to conceive us. But it was a propriety of their generation that love was practiced in the dark and never mentioned or acknowledged at any other time. Life was made tolerable by its formalities. Even the most intimate relationships were dressed in formal terms. Our father was never without his fresh collar and tie and vested suit. I simply don't remember him dressed any other way. His steel gray hair was cut short and he wore a brushed mustache and pince-nez, quite unaware that he was aping the look of the then president And our mother with her ample figure girdled in the style of that day with her abundant hair swept up and pinned cornucopically was a figure of matronly abundance. The women of her generation wore their skirts to the ankles. They did not have the vote. A fact that my mother found not at all distressing, though some of her friends were suffragettes. Langley said about our parents that their marriage was made in heaven. He meant by this not a great romance but that a mother and father in their youth had conformed their lives dutifully to biblical specifications. People my age are supposed to remember times long past, though they can't recall what happened yesterday. My memories of our long dead parents are considerably dimmed, as if having fallen further and further back in time has made them smaller with less visible detail, as if time has become space, become distance, and figures from the past, even your father and mother, are too far away to be recognized. They are fixed in their own time, which has rolled down behind the planetary horizon. They and their time and all its concerns have gone down together. I can remember a girl I knew slightly like that Eleanor, but of my parents, for instance, I remember not one word that either of them ever said. Which brings me to Langley's theory of replacements. When it was first expounded, I'm not sure, though I remember thinking there was something collegiate about it. I have a theory, he said to me. Everything in life gets replaced. We are our parents' replacements, just as they were replacements of the previous generation. All these heads of bison they are slaughtering out west. You would think that was the end of them, but they won't all be slaughtered, and the herds will fill back in with replacements that will be indistinguishable from the ones slaughtered. And I said, Langley. People aren't all the same like dumb bison. We are each a person. A genius like Beethoven cannot be replaced. Oh, but you see, Homer, Beethoven was a genius for his time. We have the notations of his genius, but he's not our genius. We will have our geniuses if not in music, then in science or art, though it may take a while to recognize them, because geniuses are usually not recognized right away. Besides, it's not what any of them achieve, but how they stand in relation to the rest of us. Who is your favorite baseballer, he said. Walter Johnson, I said. And what is he if not a replacement for cannonball titcomb, Langley said. You see, it's social constructions I'm talking about. One of the constructions is for us to have athletes to admire, to create ourselves as an audience of admirers for baseballers. This seems to be a means of cultural communizing that creates great social satisfaction and possibly ritualizes what with baseball teams of different towns, our tendency to murder one another. Human beings are not bison, we're a more complex species living in complicated social constructions, but we replace ourselves just as they do. There will always be in America, for as long as baseball is played, someone who serves youth still to be born as Walter Johnson serves you. It is a legacy of ours to have baseball heroes and so there will always be one. Well, you're saying everything is always the same as if there's no progress, I said. Oh, I'm not saying there's no progress. There's progress while at the same time nothing changes. People make things like automobiles and discover things like radio waves. Of course they do. There will be better pictures than your Walter Johnson, as hard as that is to believe, but time is something else than what I'm talking about. It advances through us as we replace ourselves to fill the slots. By this time, I knew Langley's theory was something he was making up as he went along. (laughs) What slots, I said. Why are you too thick in the head to understand this? The slots for geniuses and baseballers and millionaires and kings. Is there a slot for blind people, I said. I was remembering just as I said that, the way the eye doctor I'd been seeing shined a lot in my eyes and muttered something in Latin as if the English language had no words for the awfulness fate. For the blind, yes, and for the deaf, and for kingly opposed slaves in the Congo, Langley said. In the next few minutes, I had to listen carefully to see if he was still in the room because he'd stopped talking. And then I felt his hand on my shoulder, at which point I understood that what Langley called his theory of replacements was his bitterness of life or despair of it. Langley, I remember saying, Your theory needs more work. Apparently he thought so too, for it was at this time that he began to save the daily newspapers. I'll stop there, thank you.
1: Well, welcome back everyone. It's great to be here again for another in the Writers on a New England stage series. And how wonderful to meet a legendary writer like E.L. Doctorow, who has told me to call him Edgar. So that's what I'm going to call him. And Edgar, Just talking a little bit more about the book, if we could, you touched on this. Many people of a certain generation who lived in New York remember that story of the Collier brothers uh, when it first came out about what they had done, how they lived their lives. What are your personal memories from that time of when that news came out?
0: Well, I remember reading the papers very avidly, and I... um I remember uh, a few years later, uh, as my mother looked into my room and said, my God, it's the Collier brothers. (laughs) And somehow there was some connection there between.
1: (laughs) A lot of mothers did that.
0: Yeah. uh, uh, They became um, instant with their death, instant um, uh, folklore. And that's why I have felt um, entitled not to stick to the clinical facts of their of their lives, but to um, it's, it's as if there are two kinds of Collier Brothers. There are the clinical, factual, historical Collier Brothers, and there are mythical Collier Brothers. They occupy two realms, sort of like Abraham Lincoln, except at a less exalted level. And I chose with this book to... Um, to deal with the myth. And uh, the myth, you don't have to do any research. You just <laughs> you just interpret.
1: Well, what did the papers say at the time? You said you read the papers when the Collier story first broke. What well, do you uh, remember uh, about that public It was, reaction? A, it was actually
0: mm-hmm. quite a gruesome situation. Um, uh, Homer was uh, totally dependent on his brother. He was a physical wreck. And Langley was, by that time, quite paranoid and had taken all these bales of paper and stuff and things and, and rubber tires and equipment and piano innards and everything and constructed snares or traps because he was convinced that people, there was a certain kind of gossip about them. They had attracted a lot of attention and he thought they would be invaded. Uh, prowlers would be looking for money because they had the reputation of being quite wealthy and what happened was that one of these he Langley tripped over one of these trip wires he constructed and all this junk fell down and killed him and and Homer was waiting for him and he relied on Langley to bring him food water and and Homer starved to death is what happened and uh the neighbors began to detect um, a kind of odor coming from that house, and uh, and the police went in and broke down. They they had to go through the roof to get in, and they after a couple of weeks they found the bodies and started to shovel out the stuff. And that's when the crowds gathered, and that's when the newspaper reporters went there. And then um, they had no heirs, so. Um, the city just pulled the house down and made a little park. And um, a few years ago there was a piece in the paper about the Collier Brothers Park and that the neighbors were objecting to calling this lovely little park, the Collier Brothers Park. And I thought, they're still disturbing people 50 years after they death. <laughs> that, that did something to me and uh, but it wasn't until I um, found myself writing the first line, I'm Homer the Blind Brother, that I knew he was gonna write the book.
1: Were the editorials at the time this story came out, um, you know, saying this is disgusting and how could they live this way and what disreputable f- disreputable folk they were?
0: I don't remember any such editorials, but clearly they were a, um, a kind of a, um, comment on the rest of us, having done something in extreme form that we all do. We all collect. We all aggregate. By the way, I don't like to think of them as pack rats. I don't like that phrase. I think of them as aggregators, (laughs) sort of like Google. (laughs) I think think of them as curators of their life and time. (laughs) <laughs> and the house is a sort of American museum.
1: What do you think of that park and the fact that, you know, one day they're talked about as kind of freaks that hoard everything and how can they do this, and the next day they have a park named after them.
0: Yeah, there aren't many parks named after people. Even Frederick Law Olmsted, who more or less was responsible for Central Park, he didn't get named after. The park was named, it was named Central Park in New York. So that's another reason that uh, the Colliers are in this pantheon of mythic American uh, stories. Uh, generally speaking, um, uh, I found much meaning in them, that they were looking for meaning in their lives. They had to be, and that's what I seem to, f- find in the book. You know, when you write a book, it begins to tell you what it is. And um, you write to find out what you're writing. And um, I began to understand that what controlled this book was this conversation that went on between these two men. So it was, seemed to me to be like a road novel. Even though they were more or less housebound, And so the world couldn't let them alone, kept following them in the house. So it wasn't as if they were going down the road having adventures and meeting people. It was as if the road was coming through them. And um, that's one of the things the book taught me
1: in the form of all the characters who come through their lives into that house. Yeah, it was
0: a, it's kind of a picaresque, actually.
1: You know, uh, you said in an interview with the New York Times that you thought it was a momentous thing that they did, collecting all this stuff. And momentous isn't probably the word choice most people would come up with.
0: Well, it was excessive and it was um, disciplined in that it, it never ended, it kept going on and on and on. It was, um, uh, today people, uh, in those days, people thought of it as just, they were just terrible eccentrics. And these days, as has a name called, uh, um, the psychiatrists recognize it as a, a medical disorder, the uh, obsessive compulsive dis- hoarding disorder. Um, but, um, uh, at least they did it better than anyone else.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to do something, do it well. (laughs) That's right. I want to ask you a couple more questions about the hoarding, uh, Edgar, and then move on to some of the themes that come up in this book and that have come up in your earlier books. But, uh, hoarders have gained some attention in recent years. There's even a reality TV show about hoarders, uh, it's often said America is a society focused on consuming just for consuming's sake. Do you think that this Langley, uh, Homer and Langley story and what we see today, this hoarding and consumption, is that a uniquely American story?
0: I don't know, but um, it made me think of um, Dreiser's first novel, Sister Carrie, where he, uh, he really nails us, and he says that in America... Everyone longs for something, no matter what their station life, what they've accomplished, whether wealthy or not wealthy. There seems to be this level, this undercurrent of um, dissatisfaction and longing. And One of the reasons Sister Carrie, who's a successful actress by the end of the book, it does so well is that everyone sees in her face the symbol of that longing that they all feel. And one could say this, these two men uh, trying to create meaning and and grabbing things and, and trying to find meaning in things and collecting things and looking and looking and looking was expressive of that, that longing, that desire for meaning.
1: We have a question from our audience actually about this. This person says, how much background research did you do on hoarding disorders for this book?
0: you want to know how much research I did? <laughs> just enough. <laughs> no, it's true. I've known a lot of writers who uh, go research a subject exhaustively and uh, then they find they can't write because they know, or oh, the weight of what they know just totally squashes their imagination. So uh, you, you have to start, uh, go on, and uh, trust that whatever you need will come to you, as it often does. You, if you're writing well, you're, you're like a little magnetic field force, and just what you need comes to you. Shall I give you an example of that? Please. Uh, I was writing Ragtime. I proposed to send two of the characters by trolley car from. New York City up to Lowell, Massachusetts, where um, there was gonna be a a strike, and I wanted to put Tata and his little girl in the midst of that, taking streetcars to the end of the line and then boarding the next streetcar, and so with interurban streetcars and municipal streetcars, getting up to Massachusetts that way. But I didn't know if that was possible. Uh, I loved the scene, and I wrote it, and then I decided, well, I better check this out. Now, this was before Wikipedia, you understand. <laughs> so I was uh, wandering through the stacks of the Mid-Manhattan Library, uh, the New York Public Library, and there was a, a shelf of oversized books, and I banged my knee against one of these books as I was walking through. And I picked the book up, and it was a corporate history of trolley car companies in America. (laughs) It told me everything I needed to know. That's my idea of research.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this relates to another question uh, from our audience. This person says, why did you change the ages and birth order of Homer and Langley?
0: I think that came out of the first line. Um, uh, that first line was so critical. I mean, it, it, it was so evocative to me. And it came unbidden, unsummoned. It just sort of happened on the page, I'm Homer the Blind Brother. And I was committed, to, in fact, that's the seed for the whole book. And I wasn't going to change anything, whether it was f- factually accurate or not. It was um, it. It was the line that allowed me to write the book. Uh, it it uh, has everything that uh, to come. It has Homer's voice, which is controlling throughout the book. It determines the scale of the book as a memoir, and um, and the fact that he's blind was a, turned out to be a wonderful um, discipline for me in having him just as responsible as, and, and, and complete as a narrator as someone who, who wasn't blind. So um, so that's what I did. But you see in fiction, you, there are no rules, there, there are no borders. You can do anything you want to do because you're writing fiction and, and you're saying to the reader, um, you can trust me because I'm an honest liar. Whereas those people who write nonfiction, you better watch out for them.
1: (laughs) I want to ask you about a theme that comes up a lot in your past works and how it plays out in this book. Uh, Many of your books have this theme of upward mobility, the American dream, financial success, and your characters often have to give up some of their ideals in order to achieve that dream. Now, Homer and Langley are a little different. I mean, they don't really have a dream of upward mobility or uh, financial comfort. What's their American dream?
0: Oh, uh, would anyone like to answer that question? I'm, <laughs> I don't know. i do not know. I see the Homer and Langley um, uh, in a state of, of dissent that um, that is a, it's a book about entropy, about a, um, an energy system that is uh, uh, losing its energy. Um, as far as the American Dream goes, I mean that can mean so many things. Um, I, I feel the American Dream is a, uh, is a political idea. It has to do with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And to the extent that any citizen here, has a right to expect the the freedoms and rights that those documents grant, and that um, it doesn't always work that way. So um, the American dream is has nothing to do with making money or any of that. It has to do with living free and um, in a just society, and we struggle to achieve that. and Uh, haven't quite done that and that's why it's still a
1: dream. How much of a departure was this book for you in that your other books, many of them have been very energetic, very outward looking, Uh, people do go on adventures, go from place to place, and as you said this book just sort of seems to sink more and more and more inward.
0: It, a, it, it is a more intimate story, um, um, but you never can, um, um, you never can plan. I mean, I mean, all the books start, for me, from an image or some sort of evocative state of mind or, or state of arousal, some sort of private mental excitement, and uh, or an image with Billy Bathgate. For some reason, I had an image in my mind of men in black tie evening clothes standing on the deck of a tugboat a workboat it was such it was in, it was an unusual combination and i wondered what that was about and then i found this boy watching and when the boat put it, put it out to new york harbor he jumped on board and it turned out they were gangsters and they were going to dump one of their men into the put his feet in cement and drop him in the water. But I didn't know that, I just had that image and then that's what it turned out to be. So I don't see these books as being wide or narrow or or um, having a lot of characters or few characters. Many of my books are, are, are told in the first person. I've always found it useful to have someone narrating who's in the story, but some of them not that way. Some of them are linear narratives as, uh, for instance, Ragtime is or or um, this book is but so something like City of God or 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 Loon Lake is more constructed as a collage and but you never know what the book is going to be or how it's going to arrange itself or construct itself until you give yourself to it.
1: I want to ask you a couple more questions about writing and your process of writing because we often have aspiring writers and accomplished writers in our audience. Here's one. Um, each sentence you write is beautifully crafted, each word close to perfect. What technology do you use to write your first draft? Pen? Pencil type? Uh, pencil? Typewriter? Computer? And how does this choice affect your writing?
0: I've never used a pencil. I, I don't understand my own handwriting. Um i' learned how to type when I was a child, and um, for many years, used a typewriter to write my books and then in the 1980s, I turned to a computer and that slowed me up for a while because it was so easy to um, revise. you just kept revising, you never got very far <laughs> so <laughs> So I, uh, I had to train myself to uh, not to trust the screen and uh, finish a page, print it out, and, and correct it and fix it up the way I'd always fixed up pages. So that's the answer.
1: Here's another one. How did being named after Edgar Allan Poe shape and form your own craft as a writer?
0: Uh, that, um, <clears throat> it is true. Uh, that was my father's idea to name me after Poe. He he liked a lot of bad writers. <laughs> but Poe is our greatest bad writer, so there's some consolation. <laughs> um, but there's always an injunction when a parent gives a child a name. There's always some sort of wish, don't you think? Some, no matter how unconscious on the part of the parent, And it it seemed to work for me for a while. I just saw at the age of nine I was a writer. Although I didn't, for years, didn't feel it necessary to write anything to (laughs) prove that. But I I did a lot of reading and then when I first, then finally start to write things, my stories took place in dungeons and crypts and stuff like that. But um, it was a kind of a mystery to me all those years and uh, a few years before she died, I said to my mother, do you, re- you and dad, did you realize, you and dad, that you named me after an alcoholic, drug-addicted, delusional paranoid with strong necrophiliac tendencies? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, Edgar, that's not funny. <laughs>
1: One last one for you. What do you think about the Broadway renditions of your work? And someone else wanted to ask about the movie versions uh, of your books.
0: I've generally just dis- been disappointed by the movie versions. Uh, four or five of them have been made. Uh, the one I have the most respect for is as, uh, the film Sidney Lamette directed um, and for which I wrote the screenplay the, uh, based on the book of Daniel called Daniel with Timothy Hutton, and some other good actors. And we made some mistakes in that film. It's not completely successful, but there's some startling, stunning scenes in that movie. And, and um, But the others, um, I've always worked with a lot of directors and I've come to the conclusion that invariably they're given to what I call the one disastrous idea that when I hear it spoken, I know the film is gonna tank. <laughs> At least for me. Uh, the director of the Ragtime film, uh, we had dinner, and he said he believed that a movie should be about one person. The director of Ragtime said that, and that was his one disastrous idea, and and so on. and. Um, So I haven't done too well, but but I must say in his defense that there's something about film that is supposed to be real. What you're watching on the screen is supposed to be really happening even if it's fantasy, even if it's science fiction. But the people who did the musical version of that were not uh, burdened by that assumption. You you don't think you're watching something um, Real when scenery comes down from the flies and, and people walk around singing their feelings, you know you're you're watching an art object. And so, ragtime, the book is not realism; it's something else. And they get a little closer to it in the musical. And the music is beautiful. The lyrics are quite brilliant. And I think the the way they uh, the librettists found to to make that. Vast book with all those characters work on stage was was really great theatricality.
1: Well, Yale Doctor, it's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you.